Welcome to Talk of the Town on 2SER, in which we bring you coverage of informative and forward-thinking ideas that push the boundaries of our limitations as a species into what will hopefully be a more altruistic and globally conscious society. In this edition of the UTS Be Thinking Forum, we'll be hearing from a talk presented by Dr. Joshua Chow, a senior lecturer in the School of Biomedical Engineering in the Faculty of Engineering and IT, and who also serves as a core member of the Center of Health Technology. Ahead of his journey to NASA in June, Dr. Joshua Chow will discuss his groundbreaking research, which has the potential to kill cancer cells thanks to the effects of microgravity in space. We'll learn about this international space mission where cancer cells will be sent into space to see if they behave as Dr. Chow's earthly experiments have. We'll also be treated to a Q&A from Dr. Chow as well as Dr. Paul Scully-Power, a world-renowned oceanographer and the first Australian-born person to journey into space who will be sharing some thoughts about the future of space exploration and commercialization. We'll let our host, Alex James, take it from here. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for making it out to us tonight. I'd like to welcome you all to UTS's event, Big Thinking, The Space Race to Cure Cancer. My name is Alex James. I'm the breakfast presenter on the UTS and Macquarie University affiliated radio station, 2SER. I'll be your host for this evening. To give you a bit of a rundown of tonight, our keynote speaker is Dr. Joshua Chow, and he'll follow me. Then after that, we'll have a panel discussion with Dr. Chow and Dr. Scully Power. After this, we'll open up the floor to you and you'll have an opportunity to ask your questions to both Dr. Chow and Dr. Scully Power. A senior lecturer in the UTS School of Biomedical Engineering and a core member of the Centre of Health Technology, Dr. Chow has worked extensively with many institutions, including the Harvard School of Dental Medicine. Tonight, he will tell you about his groundbreaking cancer research, which involves harnessing the power of gravity. Well, the lack thereof. He is heading over to the US soon to collaborate with NASA to experiment with this further. Please welcome tonight's keynote speaker, Dr. Joshua Chow. Thank you. Show your hands. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you all for coming here tonight. Um, tonight, what I really want to do is to be able to share with you um, what I've been doing in my lab, what I'm doing in Australia, and more importantly, what I'm doing in terms of you know, the global impact. Um, so, I really want to first um, thank you all for coming here tonight and also um, the esteemed guest um, here tonight um, to really you know, show you and share with you um, what is it that we're doing here. So tonight, obviously, you know, we're here for the UTS Big Thinking, the Space Race to Cure Cancer. And that's something that's very interesting and fascinates a lot of people. Um, and really tonight, I want to be able to share that with you. So space, obviously everyone is very um, attracted to space, find it very exciting, um, and obviously this has been very ingrained in our culture. Um, you can see it's be, uh, been depicted in a lot of Hollywood movies. I myself, I love, you know, I grew up with, you know, predators and aliens and things like that. But of course you have movies that are more non-fiction, like The Martian, um, Ad Astra more um, recently, and also Interstellar. I think these movies, you know, fascinate the audience because, you know, it shows you know, the mysteries and the limit, uh, unlimited potentials of space and what we can do. But it, I think it also reflects on the challenges um, of space as well. A lot of these movies, you know, focuses on, you know, how we survive space. And I think that's the key point is how we survive it and also the technology and challenges with isolation um, and so on. 
So I think there's no better time to be involved in space research than right now. Uh, I think we're entering a very exciting time because things are actually changing quite a lot. Um, as time shows, um, we're in entering the next space race. Um, and that really means that a lot of countries are actually opening up their doors to space. A lot of countries now have a space agency, including Australia. Um, and really that opens up opportunities for scientists like myself to access the potentials of space. Further to that, obviously, you know, with the privatization and commercialization of space, um, like SpaceX, um, um, Blue Origin, um, Virgin Galactic, um, these op again open opportunities and healthy competition to um, really push forward this critical area of research. So before I dive into you know all the science of you know cancer biology, I'd like to start at the very beginning when Isaac Newton discovered the theory of gravity. Um, I'm pretty sure at that time he wasn't really thinking about that. You know, 300 years later, humans will be floating around in space, um, but yet that is one of our achievements. So I wanted to put this slide out there to really, you know, summarize all the achievements that we have done, uh, what humanity has actually essentially made uh, throughout the years. And you can see there's so much technology being involved in this. It's not only about the space shuttles, um, but also the associated electronics um, and supercomputers. And we've actually come really, really far um, compared to at the beginning. So obviously, you know, we now have great plans. We have this great technology, you know, space shuttles um, and space tech. So we want to go further. So you can see, you know, obviously the International Space Station is near um, Earth's orbit. Um, but as our ambition goes to the moon um, and then obviously further, um, the technology that we need to be able to sustain that type of mission becomes much more complex. So for example, in the International Space Station, to evacuate the crew there will be between 1 to 24 hours. For the moon, the evacuation is about 7 to 14 days. And basically, after the moon, you're pretty much on your own. And so any astronauts or any people brave enough to go beyond the moon, they'll have to be able to sustain themselves um, throughout this process. So everyone would have heard in the media um, the Artemis project um, and the mission where we want to go to the moon and use the moon as a bouncing point to go further into Mars. Um, so you know, this really depicts you know, the challenges of um, doing that. Um, and I really want to really put into perspective um, for everyone here tonight what that really means. I know we all know space is really big, um, but how big is it? So I'd like to, before I go on, um, do a demonstration to show you um, what that really means. So tonight I have my helper, I guess, <laughs> to come up to help me. <sighs> okay, we stand there. Um, she's going to hold this, and she's going to be representing the sun. Okay, everyone revolves around her. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this is about, I'm holding a green bean right now. Okay, it's very small. So this is about the scale we're talking about. This is how small we are in the solar system compared to the sun. We are, might be small, but we have big ambitions. And this is what we're talking about. We're trying to travel around the solar system when we're actually that tiny. So I really want to put that into perspective for everyone, what we're trying to achieve here. And you know, it's a great, it's a great advancement for human, human species, essentially. Okay. Um, maybe after the talk, we can all revolve around her, make her feel special. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but for now, thank you very much <laughs> to help with the demonstration. 
I like to tell people if today or tomorrow we have a spaceship that can take us to the moon, to Mars, that's great. But can we actually survive the trip? And more importantly, when we get there, can we survive the environment? And that's the biggest problem right now is that we might have the tech to get there, but how do we actually survive that trip and be able to colonize those planets? So, well, obviously a lot of, um, you know, like NASA, they have space biology division, but not, not a lot of attention has been paid to it, um, towards this level of research. But obviously now, getting serious about going to Moon and Mars, they're starting to make more efforts and more advancement in this area because we really need to understand um, how the biology is driven um, to be able to survive that. So space biology is obviously, you know, something um, involves a lot of things are centered around gravity uh, because gravity shapes life. So I want you to have a look at this. You know, what I mean by gravity shapes life is all um, starting from the cellular and molecular level. So every single cell in your body is also responsive to gravity. That carries on to the tissue organ level. So we all know that, you know, astronaut lose bone. Um, and so that's a tissue level. And then that essentially translate into effect on the organis organism level. So as a human species, our physiology and anatomy is affected by gravity. So I mean, apart from the human body, what else does gravity uh, affect? It obviously shapes our ecosystem, our mountains, our rivers. It shifts the seas as well. Uh, so that is also dependent on gravity. Gravity also drives the weather and the climate. And really, in essence, for as long as the planet Earth has been around for three and a half billion years, gravity, 9.8 uh, meter per second square, this is the high school physics, has remained the same. It's the only one thing that has remained constant throughout the um, history. I mean, animals, um, us, we've evolved, the environment has changed, everything has changed, but gravity has remained constant. So we have actually no genetic memories in our body or the um, ecosystem around us of being in space. That's why it's so foreign to our body and that's why everything changes for life in space. So let's start at the beginning. You know, for us to get into space, obviously space flight is the first step of that way. And of course, you know, with uh, you know, rocket booster and acceleration, the, uh, the astronaut will feel a, lo a lot of different um, g-force um, in every single uh, different types of direction. Astronaut missions, you know, can span between months and uh, now more recently to years. So it's really important to understand the associated risk uh, with this type of mission. So, you know, what happens when you, once you get into space? You know, you suffer from first microgravity. Um, and then obviously you have the radiation from the sun, cosmic rays and other magnetic field. Um, so really space is a very hostile environment uh, for the human body. We weren't built to be in space. So we actually have to build all these countermeasures um, to be able to survive it. So let's start with microgravity. What does that actually mean? So microgravity really is, you know, provides a environment in which there is no gravity and also and it provides a really good platform to really identify novel mechanisms in the human body for biomedical research, uh, fundamental science, and also space exploration as well. So let's start with something that everyone knows and understand, muscle and bone response to loading. So we all say, you know, we have to, you know, do um, exercise, you know, do weight-bearing exercise. It gives us stronger muscles and bone, and it just helps us to maintain, you know, um, our, our normal physiology. 
So whenever you lift something heavy or whenever you do um, weight-bearing exercise or go for a run, that translates into a signal in your body, and that's how you build bone and build muscles. So it can, it can also be true for the opposite, that muscles and bone respond to unloading. So what that means is, for example, someone that's been lying in bed bound for a long time, um, people who develop osteoporosis as they age, so that is very similar to an astronaut being in space because they lose about uh, around 1% of bone for every month that they're up in space. So you know, if we want to do longer and deeper missions into, um, into the galaxy, um, we have to be able to solve this problem. So you know, obviously uh, other organs in your body are important, but the skeletal structure and your muscle is the fundamental um, building blocks of the human body. So there's no point getting to another planet, and then once you're there, your muscles and your bone don't work because you won't be able to do anything, essentially. So what can we do about that? And this is um, really to depict that you know, a lot of the problems we see as a response to space is also problems, terrestrial problems down here on Earth. So whether it's very, like I said, it's very similar to having osteoporosis, um, also cancer, obesity, and also um, other signs of aging. So a lot of the conditions that we see in space also translate to um, terrestrial um, health problems as well. So what are we trying to do with the International Space Station is really to use it as a platform to identify and trial a lot of these conditions and disease models as, as if we were to do these trials on Earth. Um, and the ISS really provides that platform for us to be able to do that. So let's, again, let's start with bone and you know, what have we done in terms of helping astronauts to counter, counteract the bone loss. So I'd like to start off with introducing you um, osteocytes. These are your bone building cells. You have osteoblasts that build, osteoclasts that destroy bones, and there's always a balance in a healthy person. When you develop osteoporosis, um, when you develop osteoporosis, there is this imbalance where you have destroying more than your building. That make that uh, that's just logical. Osteocytes are basically the manager, so it dictates how much gets built how much gets destroyed. So they're the manager cells. So it was really in 2001 that scientists did, um, identified slurostin as, um, as a protein um, that is responsible for this condition where there's um, bony overgrowth. So this person, there's a mutation in this person's um, <coughs> body in which bone is overly produced. And that's why he, uh, this person has this really massive um, bone growth. So what they found was that there was a mutation in the osteocytes, specifically with slurostin, that induced it. And since then, people have been looking at how do we actually use it as a target to inhibit um, and to manipulate it. So during my time at Harvard, I worked with uh, NASA and NGEN, and we um, did a number of um, space missions um, to really look at you know, developing this slurostin antibody. So it's an inhibitor. It blocks the signaling pathway. Um, and this is really important um, because once we blocked it, it's actually fooling your body into thinking you're exercising when you're really actually not. So you can see here um, that the control group, uh, this is an osteoporotic um, sample, but with the slurostin antibody injected, not only did the subject not lose bone in space, but they actually gained bone. So you can immediately appreciate how this has been now translated into FDA-approved drug 
for osteoporosis. So it's actually solving two problems, osteoporotic patients and also astronauts losing bone. So that this really highlights, you know, there's so much potential and that we can leverage from the unique environment of space. So what is the basis of the response to microgravity? So wh what's actually happening at the cellular level that, uh, that, is res um, that the body responds when it's under mi microgravity condition? So there's a new concept of you know, mechanoreceptors, basically your cells sensing its surrounding. And that changes when, you, when there's uh, differences um, in gravity and also mechanical signal. So what we really want to be able to identify is you know, what is the threshold in which that you know, your body can function normally in, in terms of the lack of um, gravity? You know, how does the cell respond to microgravity? And also how does the individual cells, um, tissue and organism level respond to microgravity? So I'd like to first introduce you to this concept of that cells are sensitive to their surrounding. So over here, no different than humans. If I ask you to go to the beach and you have a nice spread of um, sand to do yoga, you'll feel great, right? You know, you get to stretch out a bit. If you're like me, enjoying the Tokyo subway in the, during peak hour, um, you get cramped up like that. Cells are the same. If you give them enough space, they will function, they will function normally. Um, well, this is really what um, they'll function normally, but if you confine the space that they are able to spread, they also um, be able to transfer that um, signaling into you know I want to die or you know they're not going to fu fully function. So it's no different than how we feel um, in the real world. Obviously, you know we can't do all our experiment on the International Space Station, right? Um, it's, it's just not economical. Um, it also takes a lot of time. So, what can we do to simulate it down here on Earth? Um, and there are a couple of technologies and approach towards that. Um, there's the neutral buoyancy, magnetic levitation, parabolic flight, or drop towers. But the problem with these is that they only offer you seconds, if not minutes, of microgravity, and that's really not enough as a cell biologist to look at the biological impact. So what people normally do is look at using the random position machine or the RPM. So there are a number of RPMs available on the market, um, but you can see they're you know, quite a big um, engineering uh, marvel, but they weren't really designed for studying biology. They do what they do, but they're not really for cell biology, for a biologist like myself to study what's actually happening. So how an RPM works, really, it's actually simultaneously rotating in two axes, X and Y, and that cancels out the vector um, of the gravity. So coming back to Australia, um, because there's no device available, and since I work in a very, um, work at the FEIT, Faculty of Engineering IT, and we have a lot of talented students, um, we decided to build one ourselves um, to be able to cater for the biological questions that I'm really after. So you can see what we've made is um, you can see there's a flask of cells here rotating um, in the RPM and this is, has set the stage for us to be able to evaluate um, how cells and diseases um, respond to microgravity. So let's move on to the theme of tonight, cancer. Uh, cancer has touched everyone's life one way or the other um, and I think it will continue to do so. So before we get into how we kill it, let's first try to understand how it functions. So over here, we have a tumor. A tumor is made up of a lot of cancer cells. So you have your healthy cells, 
then you start to develop some sort of abnormal cells, your cancer cells. Then they multiply and get more and come together, and then eventually they become a tumor and invade your body. So it's, it's kind of like saying, to make it uh, more relevant, it's like saying I asking 10 people to come up here on stage, and we all hold hands to form a big group, right? That requires me to communicate that to you, to come up here, select 10 people, and hold hands, and let's form a group. And that's the same with cancer. There must be some way that they're communicating with each other to come and form a tumor. They just don't randomly come together. So for them to come together, even for us to come together, we have to be able to feel each other, right? We have to feel each other's hand to be able to hold each other. So I know this is a very um, deep um, science type of figure, um, but I just want to show you the complexity that goes into identifying how cancer cells perceive their environment, the signaling pathway. So it was just funny enough that the, the signaling pathway that I look at in terms of bone is also the origin of human cancer, the signaling pathway for um, um, human cancer. So that that's what that means is that your body, every organ in your body, every cell in your body has the ability to sense their surrounding and that dictates how much it grows, function, and respond. And this is that central nexus. So, you know, given that now that we know that cancers actually have a central um, portal uh, in which it processes mechanical signal, it processes how it um, responds to its environment, then we can really be able to target that. So, obviously, in, um, in today's world, everyone is talking about personalized cancer therapy, right? Because I think we've come to accept that there's not going to be any golden drug that's going to cure all cancer or even any type of cancer, and that everything's now personalized. And why is it personalized? Because we finally accepted that no cancer is the same and no individual is the same either. So the best we can do is trying to group different peoples that are similar and to use um, develop drugs that target those specific group. So the analogy I like to give um, to people is this. Like in this room right now, we're all humans, right? But we're all different humans. We're different age group, different races, and so on. And that's no different um, from, from cancer, right? Um, they are all different as well. But even though we're all humans, there's some fundamental survival mechanism we all share. We all have to breathe, we all have to eat, we all have to sleep, we all have a pumping heart, as most of us do. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that everyone here is human and that there's no aliens here tonight. Um, so, you know, there's some things that we share in common, but does cancer share those mechanisms as well for their basic survival? So that's what I wanted to find out. So I guess I started this journey and this research asking, you know, what happens when cancer counts sense, right? Um, can it still form a tumor? If it was already a tumor, um, you know, does it break apart? You know, what actually happens to it? No one really, um, no one really knows. So that's kind of where I started um, this level of research. But before I can get um, too deep into the research, I have to be able to recreate cancer. Right? I don't want it to grow in a flat dish because that does not represent a tumor. A tumor is a three-dimensional tumor. But you saw before, right? It's three-dimensional. So how am I going to recreate that? So we're very fortunate at UTS. Um, we have a leading 3D ball printing facility in which we're able to print 
and or make artificially um, this type of um, tensor models, uh, spheroid models, um, in which it's embedded, it's three-dimensional, and that gives us a better representation and more accurate response to anything that we do with them. So the biggest question, what happens to tensor in microgravity? You know, how does it respond to it? So we decided to first put nasal cancer. Um, and you can see this is um, the normal gravity. And then once we expose it to microgravity. So this is after 24 hours. You can see that there is significant reduction in the, in the cell. All right, that sounds really cool. What about another cancer? So we tested against ovarian cancer. Again, we see this trend in which the cancer cells are also significantly reduced. And then we look at breast cancer. Again, after 24 hours, you can see that the cell shape are also very different, and they're clumped up together, and there's also a significant reduction of the cancer cell. So three different cancers and three different regions of the body all respond very similarly to each other. And so that, that was very exciting, um, and we weren't really ex expecting um, this result. So the other question I always get from other people is, okay, so it works on cancer, but what about your healthy cells? You know, do they respond to microgravity, or what's going on? So this is normal healthy cells. So your osteoblasts, remember the bone-building cell, and the osteocytes, your managing cells. Yes, after 24 hours, yeah, there's reduction, and they respond to it. But the biggest thing is that even though we respond to it, cancer cells are highly more sensitive to the lack of gravity than your healthy cells. So they will be the ones to respond first. Ultimately, your whole body eventually will respond to the effects of microgravity, but who responds first is the most important. So, you know, we, we did very deep analysis um, in looking at the signaling pathway between the cells. You know, how do they communicate? What is happening at the uh, cellular level, and really what we found was that the cell cytoskeleton, just think of it as the cell's skeleton, um, is the first line of mechanical sensing. So it, it actually makes sense. If I were to suddenly put you and teleport you to Antarctica right now, you're going to cramp up together because you're cold. And that's the same as cell responding to different environment. It's going to change its physical shape. Um, and this is what we're seeing is that it's actually changed its physical shape in response to microgravity. So in terms of the, the cancer cells at the cellular level, what is actually happening? Apart from the shape changing, what else is it doing to the um, cancer cells? What we found was very interesting is that the cancer cells are actually being stopped, and this is, I think, high school you know, cell biology where you have that mitosis, meiosis, um, and all the phases. Um, so what we found was that it, microgravity is actually forcing the cancer cell to be stuck in this growth phase, on the G2 phase. So it's in essence, it's actually preventing them from multiplying. And that's really important because cancer is really aggressive when it's multiplying really fast. But what we found is that the lack of gravity, just the lack of gravity and no drugs, we're able to prevent it from multiplying. And that's very powerful because you know, what is actually happening, what is causing it, not to proliferate or multiply. Um, that's what we're trying to find out. So the next biggest question I always get is, so now what? Do we send patients up to space? Um, 
as much as that will be great for the space tourism industry, um, that's not really practical because you know, not everyone can be able to access that. Not to mention you probably have to stay up there um, for quite a long time. So the short answer is no. We're not trying to, my goal is not to try to send cancer patients into space. So what is it I'm trying to achieve and do? I think it's time for us to start tricking cancer, just like it has been tricking our body. Right. Um, so if you remember, you know, at the beginning of my talk, where I was talking about the bone, where we're tricking the body into thinking it's, you know, doing exercise. Similarly, we can also trick the cancer cells to think it's in space or in zero gravity. We just have to find the receptor that is responsible for the sensing mechanism. And so that's what we're trying to do here is try to identify those um, receptors. And that way we can be able to target it. Now, the next question is, oh, am I supposed to develop a drug for it? No, because we all know developing new drugs takes a long time, takes a lot of money. We're talking about five to 10 years, billions of dollars. That, to me, is not very practical. I'm a very practical person. That's, that's to me, is not practical. So what I like to do is to screen for existing drugs that are on the market already that has the potential to target those specific receptors. Once we've identified the receptor, it's not hard to find drugs that's associated with those receptors or pathway. So just about, I think in January, um, uh, a study done um, at Harvard um, showed that you know, they screened about 4,500 non-cancer, non-oncology drugs, and they found that they actually have potential to work on cancer. So there are drugs out there that we just don't know um, that can have the potential to disrupt them. So my goal and I'm not going to say that I'm going to create a golden bullets for all cancers, but if I'm able to disorientate them, disrupt their normal function by even a few, uh, 10, 20%, and give existing therapies and drugs a better um, efficiency, then I think I've done a pretty good job. So, you know, what I've talked to you about so far is about, you know, simulating, um, you know, cancer response down here on Earth. Right. So what, what are we going to do ne next? So that was about what we've done. What are we doing next and moving forward? So one of the biggest questions that people also ask is, you know, okay, microgravity is, is very important, but what about solar radiation? Okay. Um, and we all know radiation does significant damage to the human body. Um, and, you know, you can see from this um, summary, you know, when you go up from the ground level on earth, to the airplane, to the ISS, and traveling to the moon and Mars, your risk of um, radiation obviously significantly increase, and that's gonna affect the human body. Now radiation is a very specialized area of research because one, you need the radiation source, and not everyone has access to that. Uh, but then again, those people with radiation source um, don't know too much about the biology side of things. So there's always been that disconnect. So what we've done, um, just two weeks ago, uh, we've, we've um, established a partnership with ENSTO, and we actually went in to install our microgravity device in their radiation source. So for the first time, we're able to look and study how cells respond under those two conditions. Is it the microgravity, is it the radiation, or is it a mixture of both? And what we've done is also combine it with um, organon chips. So organon chips are basically these small microfluidic chips that mimics different organs or disease models in your body. And that gives a better representation 
and accuracy to the effects of drugs or um, responses um, to uh, microgravity and radiation. So we're very excited about this partnership, um, this new facility that we've um, put together, um, and it's really, really exciting because we're now finally able to answer some of the most fundamental questions that we've never been able to really answer. So, you know, we could do all that down here on Earth, but now what if we want to actually test our theories, our cells or diseases up there in space? So we have to be able to have that technology and ability and capability to be able to conduct that level of research. We've, we're pretty well established sending satellites, electronics you know, up into space. We, we do that pretty frequently. But sending live cells and diseases into space, that is a real technical challenge because one, the cells and the disease actually have to survive the launch, get there, and then that's when you can do experiments. So this box over here represents a space module, the uh, cell, um, cell code, cell biology module uh, that we've been developing. You can see that there's an organ on chip here. Uh, we have a fluorescent camera and some basic electronics um, to complement it. In reality, this is about half a tissue box, okay? So this is about half a tissue box. Um, we have to fit everything in that tissue, um, that kind of um, area. So it's not a lot of space to work with. Um, and that's why, you know, space research is also very interesting because it's also about sustainability. You know, how do we make things robust um, with most minimal um, technology, but to able to address the questions that we want. So I'm very happy to announce that, you know, we're in the final phases of signing a partnership with Mayo Clinic and the United States. They are also starting their space medicine program in two weeks time. Uh, and that and we're partnering together to build next generation uh, space modules to be able to conduct more advanced biological studies um, up in space. What's even more exciting um, with this partnership is that in the next two years, we, so far we've actually secured three more launches into space um, with Blue Origin and also Virgin Galactic. Um, so we'll be able to test not only our technology, but also to test our theories with the different diseases and cells as well. So everything I've talked about is at the cellular level, but what about a tissue whole organism level? We, we understand that you know, we lose, uh, astronaut lose muscle, um, obviously bone. How, do we, how can we mitigate that? So what we're also doing in our, in our uh, laboratory is creating a next generation astro um, bio exoskeleton. Uh, so you can see over here, um, what we want to do is combine it with artificial muscles to, um, to induce compression and um, pressure throughout your body um, so that the astronaut has that constant blood flow going up and down um, so that they're mechanically activated um, so that hopefully will prevent um, the loss of bone and muscle, at least slow it down a bit. So these are very, these are very important aspect if we want to go to the moon and go to Mars and stuff like that um, to be able to facilitate this level of technology. So you can immediately see, you know, we're not only doing, you know, theoretical work at the cellular level, but how do we translate that knowledge and experience into something that it has of practical value um, to the entire body as well. So, you know, what, we, what we've been trying very hard is, you know, develop a process and a, and a streamlined um, process in which we're able to help Australian research community to access 
um, space research. Um, it's not trivial, obviously, because if it was easy, everyone would be doing it, right? Um, so, you know, based on my experience, you know, how do we actually help a lot of researchers do that and achieve that is also very important because everyone knows it sounds cool, but when it really comes to, you know, doing it, um, you know, how do we go about it? And, you know, a lot of when we're trying to take that headache out of researchers and so that they can focus on the research question that they're really after. So, you know, as, as part of that, you know, we we can't do this. I can't possibly do all this research myself. Um, so for me, it's about how do I build a, not only a domestic um, Australian network of researchers, but a global one. And you can see that in the past half a year, you know, we've been developing this relationship from the all the way from the United States to Europe and also to Asia to really bring everyone together because this is something that is that requires that level of engagement globally. Uh, to be really able to advance. Uh, and as I said, you know, more countries are open now um, in the privatization of space. Um, of course, they're more willing to engage at a higher level as well. So I'm very excited to announce that, you know, we're going to be launching Australia's first space biology mission to the International Space Station in August this year. Um, so I think on the weekend, there was a SpaceX, the CR20, uh, launch into space, so we're on the next one, the CR21, um, and this is the first complete private launch of the um, uh, space launch um, in human history. So it will have absolutely no influence from NASA, it will be completely private, um, and there are also a number of cell biology studies going on this mission. So what we really want to find out is, you know, and people ask me, well, if you've already simulated on Earth, why would you want to go into space? And the, answer, the quick answer is, yes, we can simulate on Earth and we can get as close as we want, but ultimately there are things that we might miss out as opposed to being in real space. So we just want to be able to see how those cells, do they respond similarly? Do they respond the same? Or they respond completely different? Um, and we don't want to miss out on those. And also we want to be able to test a candidate drug that we've screened that has shown to have potential uh, to mimic that condition in cancer cells. Um, so that is also something that we're very excited about. So we've all good things come to an end. Um, so I just like to, like I said, this is not something that I can just do myself. And I have to I have to acknowledge a lot of my collaborators, both nationally and internationally. And of course, my um, team of um, esteemed um, students as well that has made this possible. So thank you very much for listening. You're listening to Talk of the Town on 2SCR 107.3. Thank you very much, Dr. Chow. Don't worry, he'll be speaking again. Don't fret. Uh, joining Dr. Chow on the panel this evening is Dr. Paul Scully Power. Dr. Scully Power is currently working in the field of remote sensing and is considered a world expert in this. But before that, he was Australia's very first astronaut. From there, he has chaired and run several successful tech companies, including co-funding the Ripper Group, which developed the world's first artificially intelligent shark detection system. From 2011 to 2015, Dr. Scully Power was a senior advisor to the United States government in Washington, DC. Back in Australia now, amongst many other things, he's working with us here at the UTS School of Software. Please welcome Dr. Paul Scully Power to the panel.
Well, I have to say, it's not every day that you get to sit down with two experts in a field of space and science and tech. It's pretty incredible. Um, I guess the first question would be, you know, were you always, I think we'll start with Paul. We've just give Josh a chance to recoup. Um, were you always interested in space or did it all kind of develop? Or how did that happen for you? The short answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where did you start? Uh, well, it almost happened by chance. I went on exchange from the Australian Navy to the US Navy, and I fell in with the wrong crowd. <laughs> <laughs> the, the astronauts were there yeah, in the yeah. crowd? <laughs> so from the Navy to, a, to the US to the space, I mean, oceans to outer space, that doesn't, I mean, for me anyway, how did that kind of go? Well, you have to have a sort of a compelling argument, and the compelling argument is, if you're an oceanographer, you spend your life on a ship, but the ocean keeps moving around, but the ship has to stop to take measurements. So by the time you've measured the ocean, it's all changed and you've got it wrong. <laughs> so you have to say, where can I go to see it all in one shot? And the answer is low Earth orbit. There you go. And what about you, um, Dr. Chow? Have you always had some kind of interest in space? I think as a kid, watching those sci-fi movies, you know, it's always been part of me. So yes, um, I've always been interested in space. So, I mean, the kind of idea of connecting biology to space, I mean, I don't have the brains that you do, but it's not the first place I go. What was the kind of light bulb moment for you when you kind of connected the dots? I mean, it, I, I've, you know, m during my, my research training, I've, I've focused on bone. Um, so bone research, osteoporosis, because that's that's really my jam. Um, I've <laughs> never claimed to be, you know, an expert in cancer because you know there are so many great experts out there. But you know, can I come at this at a different approach and perspective? And that's kind of where I um, came in at this. Now, Paul, you've been working on some incredible projects since you were an astronaut. We'll come back to that, I promise. Uh, but I'm kind of dying to hear a little bit about the mission. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about what it was like going? out of the world? Well, it's not as bad as you think. <laughs> <laughs> um, you only pull about two and a half Gs on liftoff, which is not much. I can pull, well, I have pulled nine and a half Gs in a fighter, so wow. it's, it's, it's nothing like that. NASA is very good at training you. You get trained for everything. You spend half your life in a simulator. You never do what's called a nominal sim, which means everything's regular. They keep throwing malfunctions at you, so you've actually trained for anything to go wrong. The one thing, though, they can't train you for is the view, because the view, especially from low Earth orbit, it, with the unaided human eye, or two eyes, is uh, three-dimensional, whereas anything you've seen uh, from space is two-dimensional film, photos, videos. That is dramatically different. Wow. So what was your purpose going up in the mission? What did you kind of, what were you the head of? Well, in a sense, I've already explained that because it was, in those days I was an oceanographer mm. and the best place to do oceanography is from low Earth orbit. Um, the mission I was on was very early in the shuttle program and it was the first science mission. And in fact, not only was it a science mission, but it's an Earth sciences mission and two-thirds of the Earth's surface is water. So you better have an oceanographer on board. It's a very simple <laughs> argument. Wow, that's incredible. Now, um, 
you're both you both started in different <laughs> research fields. I mean, we've spoken to you, Paul, about how that kind of connected. But I mean, what do you think is the significance of the crossover to space that you've both had from two different fields? Josh, can you start with that? I mean, it's, <coughs> it's actually quite fascinating because, you know, as a biologist, I've never really thought that I would cross into this space per se. Um, but yeah, I think it, it kind of makes sense. Um, and, you know, I think before the the reason why before there hasn't been that much involvement is because we're really limited by our technology. Um, and I think, you know, as we advance in our technology and the type of engineering that we can develop, um, as, I, as you saw, um, we can start to play around with, you know, how, how do we simulate this? Um, how do we understand these fundamental questions that no one seems to have answers to? Yeah. And uh, you've both worked and researched overseas and with overseas companies. Um, Paul, can you kind of tell us a little bit of what it was like researching and developing tech over in the US versus what it's like in Australia? Oh, I think there's <coughs> several answers to that. And it's, you've got to look at the time frames. I was very lucky that when I worked for the US Defense Department, it was a time when the cutting edge research was mainly done in defense, not in corporations. That's totally changed now most of the cutting edge research and development is in private corporations or universities, not buried in defense. So, you know, timing's everything, so that's true. And relative to Australia, I came across some interesting data just yesterday. And if you think about it, um, artificial intelligence is gonna be the enabler of so many things in the future, in the near future. And so, if you look at what the world is doing with artificial intelligence, it's really interesting. China's on top. They spend 25 billion a year on artificial intelligence. We in Australia actually spend 60 million. I think there's something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and on artificial intelligence, if I could pick you yeah. up on that. Um, I mean, you've been working on, uh, as you mentioned, you've been looking and researching into artificial intelligence. How do you kind of see space and discovery and artificial intelligence kind of developing together in the future? Uh, that, that's an interesting question for a totally different reason is that most people have missed what's really happening in space. And that's not going up and Yes, you've got to have experiments on the International Space Station. I get all of that. But if you think that today there are 2,118 operating satellites in orbit, 2,118. Elon Musk has already applied to launch 42,000 satellites. Wow. That is going to change everything. And he's not the only one. So within three to five years from now, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of small satellites in low Earth orbit in a mesh network, all of them communicating with lasers, not typical, you know, uh, cell phones. But to have that mesh network surrounding the Earth, all of which are going to have very smart sensors, I'm getting to your answer, all of which are going to have very smart sensors looking back at the Earth those smart sensors are going to totally change just about every industry from agriculture, mining, whatever. And the way that will work, 
lots and lots of data coming down from space, you better have artificial intelligence and algorithms that can link to the artificial intelligence to get the data you want. That's where AI is going to be so important. And what about in, uh, in your field, Josh? How do you think AI and space and science, because I mean, it does kind of feel like it's all coming together to work cooperatively. How do you think that will go in the future as well? It's very interesting you brought that up because um, two weeks ago, I was at the Australian Space Agency opening and we were discussing with Na uh, NASA's director for human integration systems. And so one of, uh, one of the key things that he mentioned was, you know, apart from the engineering of going into space, it's also the software mm. side of things. And we all understand software serves a specific purpose, but when you go out of its um, purpose, what are the side effects? Uh, and so there's a dedicated unit looking exactly at that. You know, AI can do a lot of things, but there are also side effects. And what are those side effects? And some of those can be also life and death, especially for an astronaut that's going deeper into space. So their sole purpose is really to understand what are those side effects and consequences if you go beyond what they were programmed to do. Um, so, you know, we do rely a lot on that um, and, you know, rightfully so. Um, but there's also, there's also considerations we have to look into, um, into, you know, how do they respond um, when they, you know, when we go beyond it. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a crazy world. That's <laughs> kind of and that's why you need artificial intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> well, both of you have worked on huge groundbreaking projects here in Australia. Uh, what is the significance of Australia in research and development? Can we start with you, Josh, if that's okay? Uh, Australia's... Research and development. What's the significance of Australia's profile in research and development? I think, you know, especially in, in the area of space biology, you know, Australia has always been a leader in medical and healthcare innovation. And that's something that we really should leverage. Um, and th in this instance, we are leveraging that. Um, you know, obviously, we are also limited to what we can do in terms of space. Um, but I think, you know, that healthcare, the medical research um, integration with space is a it's a natural thing to um, that Australia will be at the forefront. Mm. And Paul, you've been, I mean, you've been, I've, as we've previously mentioned, in and out, I mean, you worked in the US for 30 years and you've been through Australia and worked with different countries. What have, how have you kind of seen Australia change in its research profile? I'm not sure I've seen that much change. That must um, be a good thing. <laughs> now, if you look at the commitment to Australia's extremely good at our research, less good at development, terrible at commercialization. <laughs> it's a fact. And I was just looking the other day of a, a forward I wrote to a book over 30 years ago, explaining that with some numbers. And I don't think that's changed at all in the last 30 years. Wow. And you mentioned terrible at commercialization. Yeah. Do you think that that has a hand in why we don't have a NASA equivalent here in Australia? No, I don't think so. I think it's more to do with things like um, investment. Investment, you know, VCs or whatever in Australia typically will only invest on sure things. Mm. That's really interesting. That is not true overseas. And you did speak, Josh, about the um, the next space race, essentially, and Australia having its own space facility. Uh, but as you mentioned, you guys are launching a privatised launch. Um, what's the significance of that? I think what I wanted to, you know, apart from my scientific um, 
research question. What I wanted to also demonstrate to the re Australian research community is that this door and pathway is open. Um, you know, before people probably less he more hesitant to do this um, because they want to be certain and do things that are more certain mm -hmm. um, and you know has a uh, certain outcome. Um, but I really wanted to really demonstrate that we are ready. There is a process, um, and it's not as hard as um, people think. And so <laughs> that we can really, you know, show people that you know the way essentially um, yeah. to this level of research. And do you kind of think that privatization then is the way that we'll continue to develop in this industry? Oh, absolutely. Um, because you know, pri with privatization, um, as Paul mentioned, you know, there there are a lot more investments in them, whether it be nationally or internationally. Um, and again, I think you know, having this level of Competition is also very healthy um, because you have more options and opportunities as well as we see. You, you can put numbers on that. <laughs> Fifteen years ago, over eighty percent of the total global expenditure on space was governments. Fifteen years later, it's exactly the opposite. Over eighty percent of expenditure on space today is non-government. Why? Why do you think that is? I think that people have figured out how to do it cheaper, to be quite honestly. Um, and there's a lot of things going into that, the micro-miniaturization of electronics, artificial intelligence, algorithms, that sort of thing. All of those, even robotics, all of those have combined to make access to space cheaper. And, I mean, following this discovery, Josh, and this research that you've done, how do you think that it will kind of change the way that we view science and space science essentially i think it, it, it will <coughs> it's a good demonstration of you know what we can achieve down here on earth but also what we can achieve out there and yeah as i mentioned you know a lot of people see you know space as a deterioration of the body um, and see that as a negative thing but that can also be a positive thing um, because we're accelerating a disease condition under those environment and so that also means we can develop faster disease models um, to really study how do they progress. Um, I mean, for osteoporosis, you know, it takes a couple of years to develop, but in space, you get that in you know, a couple of weeks. Um, so it really accelerate the disease models. And for us as uh, you know, biologists, we're able to, if we can accelerate that, means we can also you know, screen the condition, understand the condition much faster than uh, more traditional ways. Mm. Except uh, you're saying that for cancer, it's the other way around. In microgravity, Yes. It declines, mm. not increases. That's right. So, you know, your, your healthy cells, you know, it's declining. So then when you have disease cells, you know, how it responds. So the, all these responses, you know, tell us things and help us to understand how they respond, function and survive. And this is a bit of a left field one, Paul, but I really wanted to get your uh, kind of take on this because you have experience in oceanography and also um, a, a very deep understanding of of you know space and etc. There's been a lot of statistics kind of floating around about the fact that we know more about space than we do our own oceans, and there's a lot of different arguments about that. I just want to kind of get your thoughts on that. Again, it's simple. It's easier to go to space than to go deep in the ocean. Should, do you think that we should be going deeper in the ocean? Yes, and, and it's sort of interesting, and I don't want to get into a long discussion, but. <laughs> Um, we're all worried about bushfires in Australia. There's some very recent research that says the ash from bushfires when it drops into the ocean 
actually has nutrients in it and actually totally improves, if you will, the algae on which um, and the small beasties on which all the rest of the food chain relies on. So there may be, in fact, a bright side to bushfires in Australia. <laughs> well, let's hope so. We can always do with the positive, right? Um, Josh, I wanted to talk to you about the technology that you were talking about. Mm. Um, first, I wanted to kind of talk about um, the uh, the microgravity device that you guys kind of built. What was the process in kind of building that? I mean, it's the Australia's first, right? What was that kind of like? Um, to be honest, you know, we, we were just giving it a go. Um, so <laughs> we, um, and we weren't really expecting too much. Um, but then, you know, we, we started, the engineers, the students started to build it. Um, we started to do validation on it. Um, we've, we contacted NASA to also get some validation um, data from them as well. Um, so it was a very interesting process. And, you know, it, it was very, I think it was very beautiful in that as a biologist, I, I have no idea about engineering. Um, so it's really you know, student driven. Um, but to have my concepts and my needs being addressed and uh, working with the engineers is really refreshing and also a representation of you know, where science, science is right now. Mm. And I'm gonna be that person that ends on a speculation of the future question. Um, but Paul, I wanna start with you. What do you kind of see for the future of science and space? in Australia and, and then the world in the next 10 years, let's say. Well, you're, you're actually asking two questions, which I've alluded to. One is space up there. Yes. And the <laughs> other is space down here. Mm -hmm. And by far, well, first of all, it's simple to answer your question in the sense of space down here is where the money is. Yeah. And so what you're gonna see over the next five to 10 years is a huge economy built around space down here. And that will absolutely take over in terms of investment from space up there. Wow. And Josh, what about you? What do you kind of see for specifically your field, I guess, and space in the next few years? Uh, <coughs> I think it's gonna really explode because like I said, you know, if we have a space shuttle now, we can get to other planets, we won't be able to survive it. So, you know, the ultimate question is how do we develop these countermeasures? But you can't develop something you don't understand. Mm. So we have to do all the groundwork from the, from the beginning, essentially. And by understanding how we respond, then we can develop countermeasures for them. And so, you know, if you think about it, we spent our entire human history trying to survive this planet. <laughs> now we have to kind of start again, yeah. trying to survive a different planet. So I, I think this is just something that will naturally come into place and will have um, a lot of attention in the next couple of years. Awesome. It's time to open up the floor now. We've got a couple of roving mics that are around. So if you have a question that you'd like to ask either Dr. Chow or Dr. Scully Power, then please pop up your hand and one of our volunteers will come around with a mic. They're all asleep. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to wake up. <laughs> there we go, we've got one over there. Thank you and um, sorry I had some traffic so my apologies for being a bit late. Um, I was fascinated by that, um, certainly the discussion. I've, I've come back from um, the United States recently and um, I, to your, uh, I guess, point about investment and how in Australia we're sort of behind the curve on a, a lot of uh, research and commercialisation. Just wondering how that could be 
uh, improved here in Australia, particularly into those, um, I don't know, it doesn't relate to cancer, but the artificial intelligence things that you mentioned because um, yeah, I was fascinated by that comment and how it could really change the dynamic in such a remote part of the world that we live in in Australia where there's a lot of nothing and that could yep. be, you know, used for many other things. So <laughs> I was just wondering, um, yeah, Paul, well, be able to answer that. I think the answer again is pretty simple. The, the, the government's got to spend more money. But in saying that, they can't just spread it out. They've actually got to make some decisions and focus on some very specific technologies. Now, as you've all seen in the last two months, governments are not very good on focused applications <laughs> of money. <laughs> and so if you're a politician, the last thing you want to do is say, I've decided to fund AI and I'm not going to fund uh, wheat germ research or whatever. No politician is prepared to do that. And that's why most of the advances today are made by either billionaires or private industry or, or start-ups or whatever because they're prepared to take that gamble and to actually make the decision to focus on something. Governments are not very good at doing that. And that's governments of any persuasion as long as they're democratic. So I have a bit of a cheeky follow-up to that. Uh, have you thought about running for politics at all? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've been asked both in this country and in the US, and my answer's always no. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why. I'm just giving you the answer. <laughs> there we go. We've got two down, one down the front and one in the blue shirt as well. Hi, Paul. I was wondering if you could expand a bit on your statement as we were finishing up the panel side of things with um, the space out there versus the space down here. It sounded to me like space out there was going to become uh, less interesting to investors, but I'm not sure if I interpreted you correctly. I'm not sure I understand your question, but space down here is going to have huge amounts of money. Elon Musk, one person is going to launch 42,000 satellites. That's 20 times the number of operating satellites that exist today. And then defense departments around the world, the Chinese are going to do a similar thing. There's literally going to be, three to, in three to five years, hundreds of thousands of satellites in low Earth orbit. It's basically going to, think, of, think about the uh, smartphone revolution. This is a smartphone revolution on, on steroids. It's going to change everything. Am I answering your question or not? <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to ask yours. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, for Dr. Dosh, uh, Joshua, um, I myself have had cancer, so I'm really intrigued to hear about how you think, with cancers being so different, so I've had breast cancer, and that in itself, as you know, is so different. So how do you propose to be able to understand or at least gain some learnings, considering that cancers are so different and even the treatments of it for different patients have such different outcomes? Um, so is your question like how I'm going to... Yeah, like how, how would you, because they're all so different, how would you be able to get any sort of the insights that you could then have that kind of effect or at least be able to identify treatments that you may be able to have a positive effect on? So, so it kind of goes back to what I was saying is that, you know, is there something that's commonly preserved 
amongst the cancers? And if, if so, you know, can we be able to target it? Um, so obviously the next step, because these are in, you know, control type of cancer cells, is to get primary cells um, from p patients directly and to see you know, how do they respond? Um, and also you know, if they respond similarly, you know, what, are the, what are the conditions that they respond to that? Um, and that way we'll be able to try and target um, those specific receptors. Um, so for us, it's really understanding, again, you know, it's, it's no different than war. You know, you're trying to, to hear the, the, what the other opponent is talking. So we're trying to understand how they communicate. Um, and by that, we'll be able to hack them uh, and try to um, decipher how they communicate and send out false messages. Hi, um, Josh, what about um, the effect of microgravity, long-term microgravity exposure to permanent changes in DNA? So those are, those are obviously something that NASA is very interested in, the genetic um, alter, um, alteration, especially with microgravity and also radiation. Um, so that's really difficult to, to research because on, in our control environment, we can constantly have a constant microgravity. We can have a constant radiation source. But then in space, that kind of all goes into haywire because you have sudden influx of solar flares, um, you know, an, an increase in solar radiation. So you know, how, the, how long people can survive, you know, what type of dosage, what type of radiation, those, again, these are fundamental questions, but yet we have no answers to. So we, th we see ourselves as you know, trying to lead in that area um, and really start answering those questions. I think there was a question in the second row with the blue show. Did you have a question? Yeah. This is a question for Paul. Um, what is the most um, uh, interesting thing that you've done up in space? Come back alive. <laughs> <laughs> Like anything that you encountered that was <laughs> out of this world. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions for either party? Yep. I'm just going to add one more thing about space down here. I am totally blown away but when I explain this to parents with the young children because what happens is their eyes light up and they instantly say, ah, now I see a future for my son and daughter, whether it be algorithms, big data, robotics, artificial intelligence, whatever. It's amazing when you talk to mums and dads. Yep. Do you want to ask a question? Um, just a question for Dr. Paul. What's the concept of time like in space? Concept of time is pretty much the same as it is here. Um, The concept of time only changes when you get much higher than 0.95 or 95% the speed of light. So for typical operations in space with human beings now, they're, I'd have to do a quick calculation, but it's less than 0.01% of that. So there's no, con there's no total change in concept of time. What is different is that when you're orbiting around the Earth, it takes about 90 minutes to go around the Earth. So in if you calculate time by sunrise and sunset, you get a sunrise and sunset every 45 minutes. So if that's how you judge time, yes, it changes in terms of 
the physical changes in time to zero. How did that feel when you were up there watching for the first couple of days? It must have felt different. It's amazing how quickly your eye-brain combination works because in zero gravity you can say that is my floor. And you can go walk on it, easy. But instantly your brain will rotate everything in three dimensions and so this will become your ceiling. And that happens pretty damn fast. I was really surprised how fast it happens. Wow. What was that like coming back? I mean, I know that you do a lot of training, but coming back... And not coming back is actually very benign. People get it all wrong. Um, no, it is benign. Uh, you do a deep, to land back at the Kennedy Space Center, we were only the second flight ever to do that. We do a deep, deep orbit burn over Perth, that's half a world away. Um, and then you slowly come back. And it's like downhill skiing, it's an energy management thing. If you're, if you're going too fast, you do roll reversals. If you're not going too fast, you don't worry about it. You get a fair bit of wing tip vibration as you come back through the sound barrier, but other than that, it's, as I say, it's pretty benign. The one thing, and I've done this in, we've actually got planes that uh, fly like the shuttle to, to uh, train you for controlling the shuttle for landing. The big difference when you first fly that plane is that when you're flying into Sydney Airport, your glide slope is between two and three degrees. The glide slope on the shuttle is 19 degrees. I can assure you that landing strip comes out for you real fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's probably a question outside of this space, but um, you mentioned how, uh, Paul, uh, how there would be, you know, 20, 30,000 satellites. Isn't there a bit of a concern that some of these will actually start crashing into one another? And of course, with artificial intelligence probably guiding all these things, but there'll come a point in time where, where that becomes critical, a little bit like the Gravity movie. Yeah, well, actually, it's, it's going to be a lot more than 30,000 because Elon Musk alone is going to launch 42,000. Uh, number two is space is pretty big and even in low Earth orbit, I'll let you go home tonight and figure out how much space it is between, say, 200 and 400 nautical miles around the Earth in a three-dimensional globe and figure out how many satellites you'd have to put up there to crash into each other. So, yes, it's not a big issue. What becomes a big issue is debris. There's a lot of debris up there. And if, if, for example, just think about it, if other countries decide to blow up some, and I'm not, I'm not pointing my finger at anyone because <laughs> quite a few countries have done it already, that debris could be a far bigger problem. For example, there's, just to put the numbers on you, there's 11, I think there's 11,523 pieces of debris being tracked every day. So that's debris, over, you know, bigger than a couple of fists. There's a lot of more debris smaller than that. But so the number of operating satellites, the number of debris now is like five to one, five times more debris than operating satellites. So yeah, 
They're the sort of calculations you've got to look at. They don't come down very quickly, but I want you to go home tonight and figure out between 200 and 400 nautical miles around the Earth how big a volume that is and how... I've got another question in, in relation to these um, satellites that you mentioned. Um, so you mentioned that it's mostly done by private individual or private interests like corporations and whatnot, Elon Musk's, etc. So um, when they're in space, uh, I'm just curious as to who owns the space that they'll be uh, operating in. And yeah, that's a very good question. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's called space law. And there's an outer space, there's actually two outer space treaties which basically said, says hands off. There's lots of other UN treaties too that are not followed, so how it's going to work out, I don't know. And if there's a dispute as to, you know, who is, you know, you've, you've intruded on my satellite territory right. or, um, you know, you're pointing a beam in my yeah, country. And then, and then, then the UN will rule on it and what, what happens with, typically with UN rules... And they rule on things today, certain countries, and uh, I'm not just pointing like one or two, but quite a number of countries say, we're, we're not going to abide by that ruling. And so the corporations effectively will run the show, not governments in space. Is that what well, you're saying? Well, if they're putting most of the money in, they'll have a bigger say, yes, absolutely. Okay. Dr. Chow, I wanted to ask you about uh, sending the cells into space. Now, you mentioned that there's a small box, and I can't remember the name of it, so please do forgive me for that, um, that you're sending up. So how many samples do you get to send up, and what's the risk of getting them to survive long enough to do the experiment? So we've actually, you know, it's not the first time we're sending cells or things into space, so there's a well-established protocol for mm. that. Um, so the, the well, I guess the probability of them surviving is, is pretty high. Um, in terms of how many samples we can put in that small container is between three to four samples. Um, so That's it's not it. so it's not a lot, and uh, and that comes to the problem of you know the engineering problem of how do we actually fit more, um, and but getting more data out of it because you can imagine. Yes, that's all, all the samples we're sending up. We want to extract as much information as we can, um, but we're still very limited in terms of the technology that's available. Um, so that's why mm. you know, we've formed these far partnership internationally to develop those tech so that we can extract more information. And is it four cells, sorry, four samples per cancer? Or is it just one cell from four cancers? Uh, four cells from the same cancer. Right, yeah. okay. So, so when it's on the International Space Station, do the folks up there have to interact with it or not? The only interaction is switching the on button. <laughs> yeah. So everything has to be autonomous. 50% um, chance of that working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong there. Last <laughs> half full. So you should have, what I'm saying is you should have two switches. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Very conscious of single point of failure modes. <laughs> well, I'll put that into the design consideration. <laughs> uh, my question is quite simple, but it just struck me. You're talking about the satellite going up. Is it coming back down again? Or are you just sending it up there and having information transmitted from the satellite? No, no, no. About no. Those cells? If you're asking me, I'm no, it's Josh. I'm oh, sorry. About the, the, ca the cells, yeah. Um, both. Um, so we'll be able to get some live data, well, not really live, um, delayed data um, while it's on the International Space Station. Uh, but what we're also after is also um, uh, getting back the samples after we enter Earth. 
Uh, so it will stay up there for about 28 days. They'll make a return flight. Uh, we'll be able to collect those samples and do subsequent downstream analysis on them. So the satellite that you were talking about before, how it's happening in September or something this year? Yeah, uh, half of a tissue box. Okay, and that's yeah. going to this International Space Station. So it's not a separate satellite. No, 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 no. Um, so it will go on the SpaceX rocket. Um, it will actually physically be taken into the International Space Station by the astronaut. It will lock into the, um, I guess the incubating module, and that's when the experiment starts. How did you turn the switch on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next time, two switches. <laughs> We've probably got time for one final question, if someone would like to ask one last one. The microgravity machine, which is an, the engineering part of that, I imagine uh, the rotation of that or the frequency of rotating that in, in the two different dimensions, uh, that must have some um, uh, relationship to the viscosity of the, uh, uh, of, of the organisms being reproduced so to try and affect that so I guess um, in going into uh, minimal gravity you will see how close you can simulate that and, and then perhaps that's also another dimension that you need to change on on earth to simulate that is that also yeah so um, what we're saying is very true um, so you know what we're trying to do is to achieve as close to microgravity as, as we can, um, as much as we can down here on Earth. And you know, the, as you mentioned, you know, it rotates a certain acceleration at a rate that we've calculated to maximize that microgravity. Um, what we know is that we can achieve a plane of microgravity. Um, so obviously, if you extend outside of that plane, you obviously experience less um, of that microgravity. Um, so. And, and what we've been also been able to do is to you know change that acceleration and um, spin rate uh, to accommodate and mimic uh, the uh, gravity of other planets as well. Um, so you can see immediately appreciate that we can also study out on the moon, Mars, and other planets uh, because we have those numbers and we just have to be able to translate that into you know a different acceleration rate. Uh, so we have all that. Um, it's just that we need more people to help us <laughs> with this level of research. Do you have any final remarks that you'd like to say before we wrap up? Anything that you've just thought of? I'm, I'm big on having backup systems and not single point of failure, <laughs> mate. <laughs> well, I'd like to thank everyone for coming. Uh, I'd especially like to thank Dr. Paul Scully Power and, of course, Dr. Joshua Chow for chatting to us. And thank you very much. You'll be ushered out now. Thank you. <laughs>